Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today's episode is another installment in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Florian Bo Jimenez. Today is September 21st, 2020. But I remember like kind of looking at like PhD programs in literature, looking at student specializations and their dissertations, and it seemed like everybody was either really focused on one author or a time period or a cluster of literature. And I stepped back and I kind of thought like, I don't know that I love one author or one time period or one genre of literature. And I care about writing, but I don't really care too much about the texts themselves. I'm more interested in like the people who are writing and why they write the way that they write. And she said, oh, that's called rhetoric and composition. We will hear more from Bo in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to a couple of resources and potential opportunities. The Council for Play and Game Studies, CPGS, seeks a research coordinator and a graduate student representative for two and one year terms, respectively. Self-nominations are due by Friday, October 2nd, to cpgs.cccc at gmail.com. And congratulations are in order for the next-gen community who now has a 4Cs special committee. The special committee Quote, is intended to enhance our capacity to do actually meaningful, important work to support and advocate with and for you, end quote. That's according to the email sent out from startup team leader Kyle Larson, who is co-chairing the committee with Dr. Sharita V. Roundtree. NextGen is also looking for moderators to join their team. If you have the qualities of a builder, collaborator, supporter, listener, contributor, or advocate, reach out to NextGen, join the listserv, or find them on Twitter at NextGen underscore RC. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series features the work of graduate students and less seasoned scholars in rhetoric, composition, and technical communication, discussing their life and their work. This unique series of episodes extends conversations within these areas to offer a glimpse of the future of the discipline. If you would like to be featured on the Emerging Scholar series, visit our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and fill out a form. Florian Bo Jimenez is a PhD candidate in rhetoric and composition at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she is currently assistant director of the UMass Writing Center. Her research interests lie in postcolonial theory, multilingual writing, literacy history, and Filipino studies. And she is writing her dissertation on resistance in Filipino student writing in the American colonial classroom, 
at the turn of the 20th century. She was born and raised in Manila, Philippines. When she's not writing her dissertation, Bo loves working out, reading, testing new recipes in the kitchen, and spending time with her husband and their two cats. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bo Jimenez. So, uh, what is your name, your institution, and your current affiliation? I'm um, sorry, your name, your title, and your current affiliation. So, my name is Florian Jimenez, but everybody calls me Bo. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, um, and I'm also the current assistant director of the Writing Center at UMass Amherst. Excellent. Are you from uh, Are you from Massachusetts? Um, no, I am not. I was born and raised in Manila in the Philippines, and I oh. came to Massachusetts in 2013 to uh, pursue a master's and PhD in rhetoric and composition. Okay, so you're from Manila. I've never been to the Philippines, uh, so you were there for, I guess, your entire life before moving to Massachusetts. I was. I did have a year where I lived in Tokyo as a study abroad student, came back, graduated, and worked as a teacher at the University of the Philippines. And then I came to Massachusetts. But yeah, I've been in Massachusetts for almost seven years now. Excellent. Well, let's get into your time in in Massachusetts in due time. But let's first start. You're from the Philippines. And so do you have a big family or do you come from a big family? And what did your parents do growing up? So I am the youngest of three siblings. All right. And my dad is a lawyer and my mom is a doctor. And both of them are actually teachers. My mother is a teacher at a school of medicine. She teaches psychiatry. And my dad is a teacher of criminal law at the law school at the University of the Philippines. So it was a very school-centered household. Um, we were like very aware that school was important and that our parents like were teachers. And so we always had a lot of respect for like the craft of teaching and the act of teaching. I actually never saw myself becoming a teacher because really? no, because I, I, I just always thought that like teachers required so much patience from their students. And that is just not, I just saw myself as like, I don't, I don't have that. Like I can't be patient with students. I can't be patient with errors or mistakes, but in college at about my fourth year, my senior year of, um, my degree in English literature, I decided that I wanted to go for it. But that's jumping ahead. Sorry, Charles. So yeah, I have a, a small family of five. It's currently eight because my brother and my sister are married. My brother has two children. And my parents did come from big families. My number, my dad is the fifth of 10 children. And oh, wow. is the third of seven. And I think on my father's side alone, I have over 20 first cousins. Um, That's overwhelming to me. I come from a small family. How was it like growing up with that much family around and things like that? Um, it was wonderful, honestly, because it feels like you have instant friends. And right. I think our age range is, well, now I think the oldest of us is over 40 and the youngest will be like just turning 20. 
maybe just finished college a year or two ago. And so like there's, you know how sometimes you can be the cousin that doesn't have a cousin of the same age. And so you're yes. kind of out. Um, that didn't happen to anybody, I think, in our family. Because there were always like cohorts of age groups. And so I'm still very close knit with my cousins on both sides to this day. Um, we're actually all over the world right now. And we had that had always been like in my imagination as a kid that we had relatives who were in the U.S., who were in other parts of the world. And so we had been keeping in touch prior to the Internet by like care packages, cards and letters. And now we have like WhatsApp groups and fiber groups and Facebook. And for Easter, there was actually a 30 person Zoom reunion, which was That's if you ever tried to see 30 Filipinos saying hello to each other on Zoom, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what do you think pushed you towards English literature for your bachelor's degree at the University of the Philippines? I think that I I really loved to write um, in high school. I actually saw myself becoming more of like serious like writer, like a uh-huh. nonfictionist, like in the style of like Joan Didion. Uh-huh. Initially, I remember being accepted to the university as a journalism major. And at the last minute, like right before school started, I was like, I'm going to I'm going to change my major to literature because I think I could learn more about writing by reading good writers instead of going out in the field. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. Um, and I so I think it makes sense to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that the best way to like become better at something like writing is to read for sure. Well, yeah, I'm glad you agree with me. And so that was my, uh, how old was I then? 16-year-old. That was my 16 or just turned 17-year-old mind deciding, like, I was going to go into English literature. Um, And so I have a BA in, I think now the degree is called British and American Literature. And you finished up your BA in English, magna cum laude, at the University of the Philippines. And that was in 2011. What happened next? After that, I was asked by my the same English department that I graduated from, you know, they were starting to talk about people. They were, I'm starting to have conversations with my advisors and mentors about what were the next steps. And I said, I think I'd like to go to graduate school in English for something related to English. Um, and they said, well, the best way to position yourself to do that, to kind of keep your mind in an academic space is to teach. Do you want to teach for us? And so I did go through the sort of screening process for teachers there. And it's a little different from the U.S. context because I held a BA and I was allowed to teach English gen eds. And I think in the U.S. that's not very common. So I went through the screening. I did a test. I did a teaching demo. I did a panel interview. And I was invited to teach gen ed classes for the University of the Philippines. Um, So I taught world literature, I taught literature and society, which were back then my wheelhouse. And I also taught college writing and basic writing back then. Excellent. So during your time at the University of Philippines, I know that you spent a bit of time working at the International Christian University in Tokyo. I've never been to Tokyo. Could you talk a bit about that experience and what it was like to live in Japan? Sure. Um, I just knew that I wanted to study abroad and kind of see something else. And I don't know why I chose Tokyo. 
Well, I think it was because there weren't many study abroad programs available at the University of the Philippines. And but they, there was a big like connection to Japan. And the best way to get funding were, were scholarships from the Japanese government. So I applied, I did the panel interview. And what I was really interested in back then was how American culture and Western culture was kind of being filtered into Japan and how it was taken up by Japanese students and Japanese people. Um, and honestly, I just wanted like a, a change of pace. Somebody told me that like you'll never get to live in a fun country on somebody else's dime for a whole year. There won't be many chances like that when you graduate. Like you'll be working, you might be working and sent to another country to work, but that's different. You know, when you're a student, you can kind of um, scrimp and save and definitely like work hard and study hard. But also there are just so many fun things you can do as a student in another country. And so, yeah, I spent a year in Japan. Um, and so I, I was at the International Christian University, which is actually an American style small liberal arts college in Western Tokyo. And I loved it there. I took intensive Japanese and I also took classes in sociology, anthropology, the history of education. I learned I had a pretty good handle on Japanese back then. And I can still I can still bring it back if I try really hard. And I made some friends that have stuck with me, honestly. I think it's been 10 years now. We actually did yeah. a abroad cohort reunion right when this pandemic started, we were actually supposed to all meet up in Tokyo, but obviously that got canceled because of this pandemic. How are you uh, adjusting to the pandemic in your daily life? It's a little strange to not have to go into the office and not have to go into the writing center. And I definitely miss the human interactions that happen with my director, my fellow assistant directors and the tutors especially. So it's we've uh, so our writing center has transitioned to entirely remote work. All of our tutors are tutoring from home, and that is very new for us. And so it's been a little nerve wracking seeing how people respond, if people are even wanting to get tutored. And people actually have respond. Our numbers are down, but they're not at zero, which we are very proud of. Right. And uh, we actually have a lot of people who are seeing a tutor for the very first time, even in a pandemic. So that means that our message is getting out there. So we're pretty happy about that. Other day-to-day -day things that have changed. Well, my husband is here. He's working from home and that's very new for us. And he, it's very strange to like hear somebody be on work mode when you usually don't see that. And so I can hear him, like how he talks in meetings is very strange uh, to me. And he says, like, you have a strange meeting voice. And we make fun of each other, actually, our like little meeting catchphrases. Um, so that's been that's been a, a but it's a, it's definitely a big change. I miss going out. I miss working in coffee shops. I miss being able to take walks and not have it be a whole production of disinfecting and changing and hopping in the shower and putting on a mask and whatnot. You are speaking to me when you're talking about your meeting voices and your husband's meeting voice. My wife, since I've been recording episodes at home, has been teasing me about my podcast voice. So I definitely feel you there, Bo. <laughs> so what made you decide to leave the University of the Philippines, where you were instructor, 
and move all the way around the world to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and pursue your MA in English. I guess really the heart of that question is, why the University of Massachusetts Amherst? Oh, this is a good story. So I have a mentor back home, and I'll say her name. Her name is Judy Ick. She's wonderful. She is actually a Renaissance, a scholar of uh, Renaissance literature, with a specialist with a with a specialization in Shakespeare. And for the longest time, I thought I was interested in Shakespeare because she was interested in Shakespeare, and I was. I even presented at a Shakespeare conference at some point when I was a faculty member. But I remember like kind of looking at like. PhD programs in literature, looking at student specializations and their dissertations, and it seemed like everybody was either really focused on one author or a time period or a cluster of literature. And I stepped back and I kind of thought, like, I don't know that I love one author or one time period or one genre of literature all that much, like enough to devote seven years of my life to a degree in it. And I kind of thought about my undergraduate thesis, which was about the English literature curriculum in Filipino public high schools and how they were using Western texts and what kinds of texts were included in their canon. And and I kind of did an investigation into why, looked at old syllabi, looked at old textbooks, looked at the history of American, actually American literary education in the Philippines. And I remember that being like such a fun project. And so I went back to Judy Ick and I asked her, like, so I want to do things like this. Like I care about texts and I care about reading and I care about writing, but I don't really care too much about the texts themselves. I'm more interested in like the people who are writing and why they write the way that they write. And she said, oh, that's called rhetoric and composition. The the university I graduated from, I think at that point, it was maybe 20 years ago, has a degree in it and they're great. You should apply there. And so I applied to the University of Massachusetts knowing that they had a degree in rhetoric and composition, not knowing a lot about what other schools had to offer. Like I didn't know that rhetoric and composition was such a huge field. I applied to a couple other places as well for cultural studies and like general literature programs, but ultimately UMass sent the best offer. And I decided like, okay, I guess I'm studying rhetoric and composition. I don't quite know what it is, but I've heard that it's in line with my interests, so that's what I'm doing. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project. 
with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. You've lived in Massachusetts now for about seven years. What are some of the things you enjoy about living uh, living in the, uh, Massachusetts? Well, we live in Western Massachusetts, which is a big uh-huh. town. And I love that you can kind of get a little bit of the bustle of a city. I mean, it doesn't compare to like, I grew up in a big city like Manila. It does not compare to Manila or New York or Boston, but there are definitely always people around. Um, and so I, I've come to love that the like diversity of people who are around, it's like a range of ages and origins of people. Um, and I also love, there's like a very sort of friendly, celebrate the local vibe of here in Western Massachusetts. So I currently live in Northampton, which is about 20 minutes from campus. And currently with the pandemic, there's a big push to, for people to like get their downtown back, to make sure downtown businesses stay open, to support your local taco place or your local pasta place. And so I love that sort of small town feel plus of the activity that happens around here, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So I know you've got a ton of, of work that I want to dive into but I think it might be best to start with your dissertation project. I'd love to know a little bit more about how you came to that research. That is a good question. I actually, when I started the PhD, I didn't think that I was going to do a project on the Philippines because one, I just didn't see how I could, if I was far away, then how would I even do that? And two, like, why would I go so far away to study something that was back there. But when I was doing my advisory session, which is a milestone where we bring in two seminar papers and look at our other seminar papers and write a narrative of our progress so far. And then as I was moving into that milestone and areas and looking at all the previous work that I'd done, all the presentations, all of the seminar papers, I realized that almost every single seminar paper had been a Filipino related topic somehow. And I just, I, I don't know why I didn't realize it when I was doing those papers, but I just kind of kept coming back. And I was like, I guess I'm doing a topic in Filipino studies. And the topic of my dissertation, which is a qualitative analysis of an archive of Filipino student writing, it really just fell into my lap. I was doing a res- doing research on literacy histories of the Philippines for a seminar in literacy studies. And I was just trying to think about where can I get a bunch of student writing that is saved somewhere. And I found a citation in an article 
that referred to an archive in Michigan of Filipino student writing. I contacted the archive. I thought they would say like, well, yeah, there are like three or four student essays here. Um, it turns out that that archive, which is the Frederick Boehner archive at the University of Michigan, actually had about 900 pages of student compositions. And so I wrote about a piece or having a piece of that archive for my literacy studies project, why literacy, like how a literacy artifact ended up in the Philippines, ended up from the Philippines in the United States. And when it was time to do the dissertation, my advisor and I decided like, yep, this is a big enough project. This is, this is it. This could actually be two different projects. And there were just so many interesting things coming up in the student writing that I actually feel like I don't have the space to talk about all of it. I actually am like setting aside a huge chunk of it for the future. Um, and right now I'm just trying to like isolate myself or sort of limit myself in terms of what I can talk about with some rigor. Your project contributes to these like growing internationalization of the field, of the discipline of rhetoric and composition. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's great. I am really happy to see the field being interested in writing histories of other cultures. Well, not other cultures, writing histories of non-US cultures and minoritized cultures and them not being an add-on anymore, but like, no, this is part of, there is it, it isn't like rhetoric with a capital R and then the quote unquote non-Western rhetorics, but I'm kind of excited to see that there's growing interest in looking at these, um, looking at fields of rhetoric, histories of rhetoric and literacy on their own terms. That's really exciting to me. And I'm really glad that our field has started expanding. Um, and I hope that, you know, in the future, and I'm sure it'll take a long time, but that conferences become more accessible internationally, um, that publication becomes more accessible internationally, the resources themselves to do research in literacy and writing become more accessible internationally. So, yeah. It sounds like you have a very special dissertation project, and I'm excited to see not only how that project comes to fruition, but how your your research advances in the future, Bo. I'm really excited about that. Let's talk a bit about some of your publications. Um, well, first of all, you've got an accepted piece coming up in the Journal of the History of Rhetoric, and that's titled The Anthropoi Write Back. And that's on a, going to be in a special issue on Americas. What's that project about? So the piece for the Journal of, for the History of Rhetoric is in, an, is in a special issue edited by Krista Olson on um, Americas. And the way that my research connects to this idea of Americas, even though it is about a history of literacy that is outside of the U.S., is as I'm looking at these pieces of student writing, I'm noticing that the students are developing a rhetorical strategy where they concede to a piece of colonialist discourse first, or like they kind of repeat something that they might you might expect an American bureaucrat or an American teacher who, who were in their classrooms. Um, you would expect them to say like a discourse on race or a discourse on writing, but they use that concession in order to offer something that's actually radical or that actually pushes against 
the colonialist orthodoxy of the time. Um, and so in my piece, I kind of look at examples of how to read, and I'm also kind of, it's, it's currently in revision, um, but I'm looking at how students, like what at, what at first glance might look like, oh, a student is just repeating or just is just completely giving in to this colonial regime and saying terrible things about their own race or their own culture. But actually, if you read it a little more carefully and if you read it with this idea that students were actually very active political agents um, and they had a lot of ambivalence they, or they could have had a lot of ambivalence towards American colonization, which a lot of Filipinos had, you'll actually see that they're coming up with new strategies to push back against colonial ideology when they're being supervised by an American teacher. Fascinating work, for real. I don't know a lot about this work because I'm on just in a different area uh, of rhetoric, so I don't want to give you the whole interesting work, you know, like you give a, a, a poet after poetry uh, reading or something like that. So I'll reserve my thoughts for a little bit later uh, uh, right now and move forward to... Uh, You've also done a bit of public-facing writing. Mm -hmm. Specifically, you served for two years as a columnist uh, for Grad Hacker. Uh, mm -hmm. That's pretty cool work. What got you into that work, and what was that experience like? I think I just saw a call online. I think it was on Twitter when I barely used Twitter back then. That said, Grad Hacker is looking for writers. Send us a couple of pitches, and we'll let you know if we want you. Um, and so I submitted two pitches and I did. I think what I was looking for back then was a creative outlet. I, I think I'm a person who thrives a lot on having a certain amount of things to do. Like if I had, if I, if I had like just my dissertation to work on or just my writing center uh, to manage or to administer, um, I don't, I think I would just get so frustrated. I think I'm the, per, I'm a person who needs like two or three different things on my plate to kind of inform each other. And so Grad Hacker for me was a way to think about connecting with the community and also representing the voices of scholars of color, scholars from other countries, scholars who were deeply invested in issues of multilingual writing and how to get that in a space that a lot of academics, graduate students, and professors were reading. Excellent. I um I don't know a whole lot about Inside Higher Ed's Grad Hacker mm -hmm. column, but it sounds to me, just being familiar with some of the titles of the work, uh, of the posts that you wrote, it sounds like multilingual writers and international students was specifically something you wanted to cover like this is this is why I'm doing this and I really appreciate that C's well it's not fair to just say C's but every conference was canceled for this semester it feels like af after the beginning of March so I think it's important that since C's was canceled to note Bo that you were a, a recipient of us, one of the Scholar for the Dream Awards. Uh, it's unfortunate that the field, the discipline, we won't be able to congratulate you in person uh, as we would have done in Milwaukee, but we do want to extend that congratulations to you now. 
Tell us a little bit about that process. What was uh, it like applying for that award, and what does that award mean for you now? Ooh, that's a good question. For Scholars for the Dream, I had to submit a gloss of what my presentation would have been about in my a copy of my accepted proposal with other presenters' names redacted, of course, and then a short statement about why was my background and like why I deserve the Scholars for the Dream Award. And then I heard back in about, I want to say December. And then, yeah, unfortunately, the conference was canceled. But I was really looking forward to meeting the other Scholars for the Dream, meeting the other awardees. Thanks to Twitter, I've actually been able to sort of find a community of people talking about the awards and what would have happened. But it's a shame. Did I answer your question, Charles? I think you did. I think you did. Talked a little bit about the process. And, uh, of course, that's a extremely, um, well, for me, I feel like it's a prestigious award. I don't know what other people think. So I think it's really great to, to talk to you about that. Your, your, your CV is vast. You've taught a ton of classes. Uh, you have awards, grants, invited talks, etc., and we can talk more about that. But I wondered if we could focus a little bit on what you're teaching right now and what your experience to moving those courses online during this pandemic has been like. Right. Um, I actually haven't been teaching this year. I was a full time. Well, I was I have a 20 hour assistantship as the assistant director of the writing center. Um, oh, that's my second year as assistant director. The first year has a fair amount of teaching. But the second year I've been administering a writing center and I can tell you that administering a writing center that's completely online in the midst of this pandemic is has been an interesting experience I don't think it's all it hasn't been all bad it's actually been a real pleasure to see the student the to see our um, our undergraduate and graduate tutors adapting figuring out online tutoring from home learning new things about themselves and their tutoring practice as this pandemic is going on. I was just going to say that, you know, the only downside is that as an assistant director, you know, I'm not just in charge of the intellectual work of the tutoring, but I'm also there. I think there is always an emotional piece that happens with administration. And so as a person managing undergraduate students, you always want to be there for them. And undergraduate students, you know, our undergraduate students go through a lot. They have multiple jobs. They're dealing with, you know, things with their family and their friends and pressures from all over the, from like, like what are they going to do with their lives? And I think the thing that's been lost in my administration experience with this pandemic is it's much harder to check in with them and make sure that somebody is okay when you don't see them. And so, we have found ways through like email, through Zoom calls with tutors who sometimes will have an hour where there are five tutors on shift and three of them don't have anyone scheduled. So we'll chat on Zoom. And in those ways, it's been nice. We've been able to like talk to them and check on them and make sure everyone's okay. But it's just a very different experience without the face-to-face -face interaction. So when we think about your dissertation project, Bo, from a historical perspective, like what do we need to think about that moment? So I love answering this question because it's such good practice for uh, job talks and uh, 
elevator pitches, but I can tell you that my dissertation historically is located at a moment right after the Spanish-American War. So as is taught in many American public schools, um, the Spanish-American War is when the U.S. was able to acquire some of um, Spain's territories, right? So that's Cuba, Guam, Puerto Rico, and part of that purchase was the Philippines, which was which had been a colony of Spain for about 300 years at that point. And so the Spanish-American War and the events shortly after that precipitated Spain handing the Philippines over to the U.S. in about 1898. So the U.S. has this new group of islands in Southeast Asia, halfway across the world, and they're like, what do we do with these people? Should we uncolonize them? What do, what's it like? And one of the projects, or one of the, well, I would say that the big sort of theme for American colonization back then was a policy called benevolent assimilation, where they decided that it would not just be a military campaign, but it had to be an ideological campaign. Part of the ideological campaign was putting up a system of public schooling that introduced English to the Filipino people. So... In 1901, the U.S. decided to send hundreds of teachers on two ships. Well, the biggest one was called the USS Thomas. So they sent all of these American teachers that they had picked through a civil service exam to the Philippines to put up the first public schools. So I think a contemporary analog to that would be, I mean, it's not an exact match, but would be like the Peace Corps or the Fulbright English language teachers who are sent from the U.S. to other countries in order to promote English, promote American values, um, et cetera, et cetera. So these teachers came on this ship and they came and there was very little waiting for them. So these teachers were literally building the schools themselves. They were requesting equipment, requesting books, pencils, paper, and they were also entering a political situation where Filipinos, I think, were very uncertain Oh, no, I don't want to say uncertain, but I think there was a lot of division about what direction the country was going to go in after being, quote unquote, liberated from Spain. So there were there was a lot of Filipino resistance to the American presence. And so American teachers were entering, I would say, in many parts of the country, hostile territory. And so the student writing that I'm looking at They are examples of student compositions written under the supervision of an American teacher. I still actually have not identified who the teacher is. The archive is the personal papers of Frederick Boehner. But so far, um, the years when Frederick Boehner was in this area of the Philippines don't match with the years that the students are writing on their essays. So the teacher could be somebody else. And I think Boehner was the principal but I don't know who is writing back to these students because um, there are marginal comments and like scribbles in the footnotes um, and corrections. And I don't know who the teacher is, but the students are writing about a range of topics. Some of them are very political. Some of them are writing about the history of the Philippines and colonization and their hopes for the future and what's it like to live under an American regime. A lot of essays are on folklore, on science, on what they're seeing um all are what what they're seeing the progress that they're the quote unquote progress that they're seeing 
And so my research is really interested in digging into this moment and in digging into, into this connection between U.S. empire, education, and writing. How there is a history of writing that is directly tied to U.S. colonization. And again, a moment that maybe not a ton of people in the U.S. are very familiar with and see how writing has actually been used as a tool of colonial ideology. In that way, I'm so, I guess then your conversation for me, like you said, I, I have I don't know anything about this. I'm I'm really enthralled though, and it, it seems like this this project enters into and contends with other conversations in post-colonial rhetorics. For sure, and I think it engages with uh, decolonial rhetorics as well. I'm currently describing work my work as post-colonial. It's in mm. it's engaged with conversations on post-colonial and decolonial rhetorics. I think that's fair to say. And I think that, I don't know what the end point of the dissertation is, but I think that the students are showing what's it like to write in situations of unfreedom and how even when you're not free or even when you are othered, you can still and you do still push back and you can still speak truth to power. I want to thank Bo Jimenez for joining me on this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I learned so much about topics with which I am unfamiliar and I'm excited to continue reading her scholarship and learning from her in the future. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast continue season three we want to talk to you if you have a book a project an interesting topic to talk about reach out to us as we are now booking guests into season five if you're about to hit the job market or go up for tenure perhaps you might join us as a part of our emerging scholar series the big rhetorical podcast also promotes and attends conferences and symposia If you want to promote your event, reach out. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at TheBigRet. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Season three of The Big Rhetorical Podcast is already exceptional. We have scholars from around the United States and the world talking about a variety of issues in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. We hope you'll stick around.